Before we get started with this episode, I would like to apologize to everybody for the quality of about the first 10 to 15 minutes of this interview. Uh, when I went over to Paul's hotel room to interview him, you know, I had some trouble setting up the microphone stands. And so I thought, oh, we'll just hold the microphones. It's no big deal. Well, turns out when you're holding the microphone, it picks up every single time that your hand shifts or changes. And so there's a lot of shifting noise on this particular episode. So uh, I want to apologize for that. I hope it doesn't bother anybody too much. And like I said, about I think it's about 12 minutes into the episode. Uh, I realized that it doesn't sound that good and um, we switched back to the microphone stands and it's fine for the rest of the episode. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Sorry for the audio, uh, but it's a great interview. So hopefully it won't matter too much. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, I'm very, very uh, thankful and glad to have the opportunity to speak with Paul Huang, right? And um, I couldn't know if it was Huang or Huang. Did, does that get people mixed that up ever? Uh, yeah, or sometimes, just but you did it? just right. All right, good. I'm on a good start. Uh, so, Paul... I also don't know what to do with this. I, I'm I'm in his hotel room right now, and uh, so I'm not in my normal setup. So uh, we're doing our best here um, to make it work. But Paul is so graciously giving me some of his time. Um, I know he works very very hard, and uh, he has a concert tonight. Uh, he's doing a run with us, a couple of concerts, doing the Brook uh, Scottish Fantasy which is a beautiful piece of music. He sounds incredible. Um, as many of you possibly listening already know, if not, you should go check out him on YouTube or CDs or wherever you can find him. Um, but he sounds amazing. And so basically what I would like to, well, first, thank you so much for allowing me to be in your space <laughs> and, and, uh, and uh, talk to you for a little while. Thanks for having me. What I'd like to start with is uh, the thing I'm most impressed with with your playing, we talked about this just before we turned it on, is the the relative commitment to the music, right? You're just like seemingly able to have the technique so ingrained that we don't even think about it, you know? And so I just get this sense that there's just total musical commitment coming out. And I'm sure you have a plan for all of that as well. And so I'm just curious, um, because I imagine you also aren't just playing the brook right now, and you're when you're traveling around, you probably have multiple pieces. So, do you want to what what pieces are you working on or performing right now? And then also, are you working on other things, learning other things while you're performing these other kinds of pieces? What does your schedule look like in that way? Well, uh, my schedule is pretty complex, um, and it always requires a very careful planning in terms of repertoire and my travel schedules and. Um, I mean, this month is uh, relatively, you know, okay for me actually. And I just had a few recitals before I came here, and um, and then tomorrow I'm off uh, to Caramore Festival for another two concerts. And um, next week is a Dvorak Concertos with the Fort Wayne Philharmonic in. Um, somewhere in Indiana. And so that's about it for the month. And um, next month is Bartok uh, 1 concerto 
in Far East with the National Symphony in Taiwan. And then here, and summer season is a, a slightly different schedule for me because in the summer times, I uh, sort of jumps from one festival to the other, mostly playing recital evenings and chamber music um, and occasionally um, some uh, concertos here and there. Uh, so, so summer seasons is um, slightly different from normal, you know, regular season. And so you have all of these pieces, not only for the solo stuff with the orchestras, but the chamber pieces and the recital pieces. Um, if you can, <laughs> it might be kind of difficult, but how early do you start working on this kind of stuff? Do you have a process that you are, you, you've honed over the years that you know, if I start working on it like this, by the time I need to play it, I'll be ready. Kind of, if you can describe some of your process, because it's very clearly working, but it also seems like, um, I guess the best way to describe it is it just seems like it's reliable, right? Like it, it doesn't seem like the whole week you've struggled really with anything, remembering anything or remembering how things, you know, work or, or it just seems like it's all, it's reliable and I would imagine consistent. So that's the part I'm most interested in is what part of your process leads you to being able to play these things so compellingly, but also maybe so consistently? Well, I think, um, there are two things. I think one thing is um, when I'm looking at my season calendars, I definitely have a very careful plans of when I should start looking at the repertoire that I will be playing uh, in the months to come. And and um, at this point, very often a lot of pieces are um, returning pieces for me. That meaning pieces that I have done it before and um, I feel relatively comfortable with, but. Um, Every season also there's at least, mm, I try to um, incorporate maybe three or four new concertos that I have not played and that I would like to learn. So so in that instance, I think I would naturally have to start much earlier in terms of memorizing the piece. First of all, getting the notes done and then um, trying to understand the music, um, not just from the violinist point of view, but also as a symphonic point of view in the concerto settings and um, studying the score of every single part of the orchestras is something that um, I do in every piece that I play. And do you have like a, a way that you notate various things to understand the music or are you just sort of uh, looking at the score while listening? Like how do you make your decisions about what you want to do versus maybe what somebody else sounds like they've done, and you're trying not to copy that, but you're looking for inspiration. Like, how, how do you how do you? Well, I think everything that? comes from from studying the score because that's the truest um, truest form of getting to know a composer's intention as best as possible, without having some sort of uh, distractions from other people's interpretations. And of course, that's not to say that I don't listen to other people's recording; they are useful in some instances and and they're they they they, they sound they could be very wonderful um, studying tools as well but but ultimately i think i try to go to score first before i listen to a, a piece of music that i don't know well yet so so i think that's a sort of a i find it a good combinations of getting to know a piece and so and i think studying the score is always a um, very 
revealings in the way of 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 a piece and um knowing which part and you know what are the most important things at that given moment is uh, very important because very often um as a soloist i think one can sometimes feel sort of um in the bubble that you're always very important but the truth is actually not you're not always very important in the concerto settings and and it's very much just an extended form of chamber music making and when that happens on stage i think that is when a performance is so blissful as far as the performers not just the soloists but everybody every musicians on stage as well as the audience how do you use the score to figure out what you are going to do um, I mean, obviously, in terms of balance, like you can say, okay, maybe I'm not the I'm not the forefront here, but you're still clearly a very important and integral part. And something like the Brook, there's so much. Uh, I mean, maybe if it's like the fourth movement where it's a melody and then it just keeps growing upon it, maybe the goal is to just make sure the melody can be heard somewhat clearly through all the, like the insane amounts of notes, but. How do you make your musical decisions? Is it what you hear in your head? You're just like, I like this. Do you have a process you go through to be like, uh, I'm going to leave these notes to this note. I'm going to shimmer on this note. Do you, do you know what I'm asking? Mm-hmm. Has it changed since you, as you've gotten older? Is it one time you were studying more? Now you're going more by feel. Is it the opposite? You're going more now by studying. Do you, do you know what I'm? I think I think um, uh, with a piece like the Brooks Scottish Fantasy, which is not a new piece for me, obviously, and every time I come back to it, you know, I think that's one of the beauties of <laughs> performing pieces that you know. Uh, fairly well it's the, uh, the the fact that when you come back to it that you will have a different point of view each time and it can really vary from a hall that you're playing and can vary from a different orchestra that you're playing with um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of any particular orchestras and of course with the maestro and how his or her interpretation um, feeds into your belief and and it's all about kind of like a microcosmic of life. It's all about um, coordination, negotiations, and um, hopefully comes to a term where it's sort of agreed upon. And um, I think that's when music shines. And I think my interpretations every time that I come back to it, I would say that it's not the same. And and every vary from each night, and I'm sure tonight and the night before does not sound the same and and it depends on everyone's mood it de- depends on the audience um it depends on the hall it can also depends on the humidity of the weather for sure of how in, the instrument sounds and i think one has to have the ability to to be spontaneous and also to be on stage and then to react immediately of that changes because those are not planned and those will never be planned. And so so I think that's what I ultimately meant about chamber music making is the ability to be very sense sense um very sensitive. How do you I mean this could just be as simple as I've been doing it for a long time, but you must have built up a ton of technical confidence then to be able to feel like you can be that spontaneous, right? I mean, we can make our musicals uh, ideas and say, this is how I like them. But 
to be able to be spontaneous means you have to be a good enough player to be able to do all of it, right? And so if you hear something slowing down, playing it slower, playing it faster, and you are feel like you want to be, um, if you want to be uh, sensitive to that, then I think the technical demands need to be, uh, or your technical proficiency, I guess, right, needs to be high. So what percentage of your, it's like if it's, you want to call it your daily routine or just, just how you approach the instrument. Do you have sort of separate, I do fundamental technique for this long. I'm working on the pieces for this long. Does it change if you're six weeks away from a performance versus the week before a performance? Do you sort of measure that out or you just go by feel? What's your kind of your process there? Well, um, I don't necessarily have sort of the percentage of what I do in in yeah, in, sure. in rehearse in practicing myself, but I, I think there's is sort of a um, routines, of course, of my daily practice that you know I always start with skills and arpeggios and double stops for violins and and I mean these are the basics that I would have to do, you know, every day. It's kind of, I compare, you know, musicians or performing artists, sort of like um, athletes, you know, it, you really need to be in shape every day and you have to, you know, get your muscles up every day. I mean, those are purely muscle memories and nothing else. It, actually, there's no, nothing myth, mystical about, um, being able to do A, B, or C. It's purely muscle memories and those are kind of like a swimmer or 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 a runner or something something of that sort that you just need to do it over and over and over again. And so those are some things that I do every day and then before I um, jump into a repertoire. So the, the thing I'm most interested in, um, I think, talking to you about is how to start start building uh, a solo career. Um, obviously, you also do chamber music and um, the soloing isn't limited. As you said, it's recitals and it's uh, orchestral things that I'm sure in other capacities. But I'm just curious where one starts with that idea. So to give you an exercise of helping us keep on track, I am a trumpet player. I enjoy playing solos, but I have not started a solo career. You know, I, But I want to do that. Uh, if we're assuming everything is possible, where do I start doing that? Um, gee, um, you know, I in my studies um, ever since I came to New York when I was twelve from Taiwan, I never actually have had a goal of actually saying that I wanted to be a soloist, and I still to this day I don't really have a notion of myself as a soloist and I really use the word soloist and um, I think being a well-rounded musician is much more important than than striving for a solo career and I don't think being a soloist is necessarily a very good thing because that means that you're very limited in what you do and what you can do and and I think being a good musician, being a well-rounded musician, I think that's a much bigger picture. And ultimately, that feeds off what everything you do. And my goal was never striving to say, oh, I have to play 100 concerts a year playing with this orchestra, that orchestra, and I'm only going to do that. And But I started um, 
studying at Juilliard, my my goal was to do as many different things as possible and within my limits. And that means lots of chamber music, lots of recitals. And of course, um, naturally, there would be lots of concerto repertoire that one would learn in school as well. So, so all of them actually somehow evolved together in my career. I can only speak for myself because um, that's where I came from. And my career developed not in the way that I won a major international competitions and and suddenly that I have a platter of solo engagements with XYZ orchestras. But my career was really in the sense that I am sort of pretty proud of that it never grew overnight or a month or something. It's always a very a gradual process of an evolution of an artist and of a musician. And, and I started out not only playing concertos and to this day, I still don't only play concertos and, and my seasons are really, a, hopefully every season is a well-balanced, I call it a well-balanced diet, if you sure, will, yeah, you yeah. know, because, because if you're playing only concertos or if you're only playing chamber music, for that matters, you lose something from one another. And so, so m- I, I always try my best to really incorporate everything possible in my performing life. And, and I think that's um, come, comes down to that. And, and so, so the idea of becoming a soloist is never something that I strive for. And therefore, uh, I don't have a method of, yeah, of so uh, becoming a soloist. That's so <laughs> and, interesting. And, and it just, I just try to do everything the best that I can. And, and naturally that you would hopefully get better at it because through experiences and then through what you thought was not so good last time and, and, and through that, and then you learn learn from from every experience that you get, whether it's from recitals, from chamber music with orchestras or even teaching. So, and and I think that's what I would like to be. And then hopefully that I'm sort of on the right track of doing that. And yeah, so I'm sorry, so, I don't know if I no, have no. the right answer for it's, you it's for a being a soloist. Answer. I think it's a great answer because it, it, it highlights the idea that if you're just trying to do everything that you're doing as well as you possibly can, some sort of something will appear from that. And if you do it long enough, you might be able to make you know a career out of it. I think there's a lot yeah. of successful people who would agree with that sentiment that maybe you have a goal and that goal helps point you in the right direction and maybe yeah. it helps inform what you're doing in terms of practicing and what things you're learning. Uh, but ultimately, uh, trying to pigeonhole yourself into one thing, uh, like you said, is, is limiting. And I think it's just an interesting perspective. Do you find here you've been asked back, like the musicians we write, we write, you know, surveys or things mm-hmm. like that. And and I think you're one of our favorites, you oh. know. And and so you've been Thanks. back. You've been here three times in my five years that I've been here. So the first time he uh, uh, Paul had, I don't remember who it was, but Paul stepped in for another soloist playing the Walton Violin Concerto. Um, and that's the first time we had heard him. Do you find that to be the case a lot of places that you go that you you end up repeating a lot of the same places because people like you so much or is it more sporadic? What's your experience? Um, hopefully that I like to think that I'm, you know, that what I do is to 
to the pleasure of of wherever that I go in in orchestras right. or in, in recital presenters or even with colleagues that I play chamber music with and and it's it's always a nice feeling to be invited back yeah and then, right and I I must say that you know coming back to Birmingham it's always a highlight for me every season when I have the opportunity to do so because I feel like I have developed some sort of a connections to your orchestra and then yeah. to, to the conductor. And I, that's kind of what I'm getting at too, is I just wonder, besides playing incredibly well, let's just put that aside. as That's probably the most important thing to getting called back, I imagine. Um, what else do you think makes it that you, like how do you try to be, you know? Like what do you, what do you try to have your persona be or just what makes it, because it's the whole package in my opinion. It's not just... I mean, we hear a lot of great players, but I don't always clamor to have this person back. So what are you trying to present as your whole total package as the thing that is you, besides the fact that you play really well? Does that make sense, what I'm asking? Yeah, well, um, I think, first of all, I really don't know what kind of persona that I perceive. It, it probably will have to be someone else to speak uh, about me because I really don't genuine. know how yeah. how I perceive to it other people. It just seems genuine, and, you know? It seems like you're just happy to be there and you, I feel like sometimes you get the idea that the soloist is there and they're doing their thing, we're doing our thing. But like you said, it feels very... I just wonder if that's purposeful, I guess. You know, are you on purpose trying to do this chamber music thing or is it just like, this is how I like to do it? You know, does that make sense? Yeah, um, I don't think playing music has... it When one thinks about purpose um, when playing music, I think that really defeats the idea of music making and um, music making should become the most natural thing for oneself and and if you were to describe how I perceive my music making or how I work with my colleagues, I think that is sort of kind of a, just an extended form of hopefully who I am and and what I do in music in general, and and I think that feeds off of every sort of music making that I do. And when you're a soloist, that I you know some people think of soloists as being you know like a singer or like a great diva or, or some sorts. And and but you cannot do that in chamber music because nobody's going to invite you back again. <laughs> right. Right. And and. And that's why, again, I, I come back to the idea of playing chamber music. And ultimately, I think making music, it's about making music with friends, isn't it? That's where music came from. And, and the whole idea of being a soloist only came from Franz Liszt or Paganini mm. or those big soloists where they are there to show off their techniques. And, and I think music is much more than that. And Technique shouldn't be there to be highlighted, and I think technique is there to serve music. So, so um, it only is very natural for me to go on stage thinking that the colleagues that I'm playing with, whether it's in chamber music recitals or or with big orchestras, it sounds it seems the same to me, hmm, and 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 I hope to feel that it's the same and because it's just an extended form of music making. No, Whether it's 10 people with you or 100 people with you. Yeah, it's right. It's the same. Yeah, it They makes play music, it's not they're accompanying you or something. Everyone plays a very important part yeah. of a piece. And when the idea of accompanying somebody, you can tell 
you can tell. And then that's why white people um, crave for, for going to concerts to hear Berlin Philharmonic um, because everyone is so committed to what they do, whether they play symphony, whether they play with a soloist. You see the very back of the seats, everybody is so in that very moment. And yeah. I think that's why it's so magical, why people pay thousands of dollars of tickets to go to Berlin Philharmonic to hear them. Mm -hmm. And then you cannot get a subscription ticket until someone has to pass away in order to get a seat. Yeah, wow. And I think that's what it's music. Do you choose repertoire based on what things are more chamber music-like and what things are less? Because there are some pieces that are kind of accompanimental and concerto. Like may, I would feel like a Mozart, that those kind of, like Mozart, Beethoven, those earlier pieces, those are going to be more, we are accompanying you while you're doing all the crazy stuff. But even something like the Brook has so much more activity in our part or the Walton as you get later, I feel like it becomes more of like a, do you pick pieces, preferentially pick pieces that are more, the orchestra has more of a, a active part or are you just... I pick pieces where I feel like I love them. And, okay. and very, very often I tend to lean toward pieces or I should say that 99.9% I only play pieces that I feel connected to because um, it's kind of like I tell people sometimes like, you know, being an artist on stage, you're kind of like telling a, uh, an analogy of like, for instance, you're telling a joke to somebody. You better think it's funny yourself before you tell somebody. <laughs> Otherwise, nobody's going to think it's funny. Yeah, So the same thing with music. You have to be committed to the music that you're playing, that you have to feel so passionate about the music genuinely that you hopefully will get people feel inspired as well. If you don't get inspired yourself of the thing that you do, how is it possible that other people is going to feel the same? I just don't think that's possible. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I get to ask you this question. Do you feel equally committed to then every per You played so many concerts. Do you feel equally committed to every single concert? Or are there some where you're thinking, oh, I kind of want to get through this? Or you know what I mean? Because it's a, it can be, I'm sure it's a grind I'm, to travel all over and play so many different concerts with so many different people. Are there times where you find yourself not feeling it as much as other times, or do you are do you pump yourself up the same way each time, saying I got to get into this because the music deserves it? What's kind of your feeling? I try my best to feel as passionate as the concert the night before, and um, and of course we are all human. There's it's impossible that you would feel almost exactly the same every night and to have that same enthusiasm because you're a normal person that you have life and there are other things in life that takes priorities than performing on stage. And, um, but I am at a stage where I am actually not playing 200 concerts a year and, and I prefer not to do that. And I want to keep my performing as fresh as possible. Even though I'm so passionate about music, but I know that I also need distance from from music because in order to keep that kind of freshness every time you step on stage. And and I feel lucky that I um, can sort of manage my schedule well enough um, that I'm not overly booked, not overly committed to something. And when I'm looking at seasons, um, you know, it's a funny thing that performing artists are alive. So same with orchestra musicians, that your schedule is given to you at least a year or two ahead of you. Mm -hmm. And so you already know at April 27th, 2020, 
what you're gonna do already. Right. And that's not something that normal people can comprehend. Sure, sure. They, they at best they think a month ahead yeah. of where you're gonna go for yeah. vacations. But for us, our our life is already decided for us. And it can be frightening, but also in the way it can also be good because you can pace yourself mm-hmm. and and know, oh, okay, so that month is a busy month. And so um, you can work on, you know, work out some sort of a gap, uh, making sure that I'm not playing concertos four weeks in a row. I need something in between. I need maybe a chamber music concert. I need a recitals or I need to get away from music for a week yeah. or so. So I think that's the, that's what I'm, carefully monitoring my seasons so every year. You for you, it's it, it sounds like what you just said, I want to clarify from for me that for you, you just try not to have too many of the same type of thing in a row. That for you, you don't necessarily need a complete break of not playing. You would just say, I've been doing, you know, I've done the 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 brook four weeks in a row. Like I would need to if I'm going to do something, I would need to program, yeah, or have something scheduled that's chamber music, uh, something different. So you don't need an actual physical break, just like a mental break from doing the same thing and being, yeah, in, yeah interesting. How many weeks, how many concerts are you playing right now? Um, I would say altogether about 90, 95, sometimes a little more than 100, depending on the seasons, but probably no more than that. So a hundred concerts. So that's like a third of the year if you played it all in a row. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Do you see yourself doing, how long do you see yourself doing? Because uh, it's got to be a ton of travel and like just constant work. Do you see yourself doing something different at some point? Trying to get into like teaching or maybe like a stable gig where you're there the whole time. What do you feel about <clears throat> that? Um, I don't like to do things that's uh, mundane, that's um, routine. And so maybe that's why I enjoy what I'm doing so far. And the idea of being in one place kind of fright, frightens me a little bit. Yeah, so I yeah. don't know, uh, maybe someday I'll, I'll enjoy more teaching because um, I do actually enjoy teaching, but I don't think that it's very fair for whoever might want to study with me at this point. Um, it's not fair for them because I'm not in one place long enough. Right, and, right. And, um, it's a different, a completely different mindset, and it takes a totally different sorts of a dedications to, to that field. And so I only do, you know, uh, master classes here and there. Um, um, so I don't have private students at the moment. So, but maybe someday. I don't know. But right now, I do sort of enjoy what I'm doing at the moment, and um, and going to different places and make music with people that I enjoy working with. So uh, Birmingham can be the answer to this question, but what's been one of, or like your one of your favorite places to uh, to go visit? I'm sure going all over the place, you end up finding some like pretty cool cities, some pretty cool things. Like what are some cool experiences you've had in various cities? Or, like what's one of your favorite places that you've been? Well, um, it's sort of hard for me to to give an answer because I tend to be pretty happy wherever wherever I am, and it mostly has to do with people, not the place. And and luckily that I've always have a pretty pleasurable time wherever I go, and then people are nice enough. And and exploring a city in completely different situation is it's it's can be exciting. And so 
I mean, coming to Birmingham, of course, is always very pleasurable, and it's now my fourth time. Actually, my very first time here was for a recital before the symphony. Oh, I didn't know that. It was on the university series. Um, so this is my fourth visit already, and um, this is my first time staying at this very hotel and. This this area I'm not familiar with. I'm, I was familiar with a different area where I always stayed in. So it's it's always exciting discovering different restaurants, coffee shops, and whatnot, and 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 also with orchestra musicians too. I mean, there are new faces that I have not met. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and some new members. Since us, last time, this yeah. is I, perhaps my very first time getting to know you more yeah. more deeply in 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 the circumstance, and and so so yeah, I. I I, tr- I enjoy actually. I really enjoy wherever I go, and of course, there are places more exotic than Birmingham, and in some places more fancy than other. But but generally, it's the people that matters. I think. Yeah. Um, I'm stuck on you saying you're generally pretty happy wherever you go. Uh, I feel like not many people say that particular sentence. Right. Although I'm happiest when I'm at home. <laughs> I, was gonna say, I just wonder if you have like a just an outlook on life that allows you to sort of feel that way. Because I feel like perspective is everything, right? In terms of how we are able to be in a certain place and be okay. And I'm curious if you have any like mantras, you know, or things that you think to yourself that allow you, I have my own that allow me to feel like I'm okay as like a human being, wherever I'm at, it's good, I'm happy, things are good. I'm curious what yours might be if you have anything that you like believe uh, sort of as a fundamental truth that allows you to feel like, comfortable, good, happy, wherever you're at, or if that's just how you've always been? Well, you know, of course, you know, as one lives life, I think you cannot always feel happy at every every point of your life. And, and the fact that there are many bumps in your life. And so, so you know, I feel, you know, I mean, luckily, I think my personalities, I tend to be more positive than negative. And so, so, um, I always say to myself that, oh, it could have been worse, you know, when, when <laughs> things not going the way you would want it to be and, and kind of just, I'm, I'm pretty good at, um, allowing myself to not be at the best that, I should have been or I could have been and and but that's that's not to say that I'm not giving myself discipline or 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 anything but but to be able to sort of divert something that you're so in it and and at the end of the day there's so much more important than just performing music I think and and a lot of time being musicians I think we tend to live in the bubble of ourselves, And I think that's not necessarily a very good thing. And there are much more things that are much more important in life than, than, than what you do. And, and once you have that mindset, I think lots of things come, will, will, will end up um, making more sense in life. That's so interesting. And so now I'm thinking back to the beginning of the conversation when you said you don't really think of yourself as a soloist. And I thought about when you said that, I was thinking to myself, oh, that's so interesting. You know, he doesn't really have a classification for for himself in terms of like his career. But I think that's so interesting because it sounds like just in general, you don't, it doesn't sound like you identify too heavily with the fact 
that you play the violin. Like that's something you do and something you give a lot of who you are to, but it doesn't necessarily define you as a person. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think a lot of time um, people do 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 look at you of because of what you do, and I think that's not necessarily um, right. And it, especially performing artists, people tend to judge how well you play or how famous you are by that that whether they like you or not or you're more favorable than the other and it you know <laughs> i think as 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 one has a different life if you, if you think of different other career paths not performing musicians um i don't think people tend to have that sort of a judgmental uh, point of if if you let's say if you're someone in the law firm sure. with a big law firm of 150 people in the same law firm they probably like you just as much who you are. Probably, of course, it helps that if you are a better lawyer or you can right. execute X, yeah. Y, and Z, Z, um, you know, um, project. Of course, you know, you 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 get promoted and whatnot. But people like you who just who you are or yeah. dislike you for who you are at being your colleagues. So I totally understand. Yeah, so, it's like the music part so, comes first. So so becoming they, a musician and because I do notice that um in our field that um seems to have some sort of a classification in that sense. And and so, you know, I try not to go that route and 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 the fact that actually most of my friends are not musicians actually. So and that actually gives me a better perspective of life and try my best not to be too much involved in what I do. And, you know, and ultimately it's because I'm passionate about what I'm doing. That's why I do what I do. Yeah. And, and it's a luxury to be able to say that, you know, you know, not many people can say that I enjoy my job. A lot of time will have to be because I have to have paychecks. That's why I'm doing this and this and this. Yeah. And, in our in our professions, one has to have the utmost dedication and passion for it in order to work, in order to hopefully work. And so I always tell people, you know, especially younger um, budding musicians who want to become musician. And um, I think before anything, before whether you're talented or not, I think one need to very carefully examine whether you have that kind of passion for this this field or this music in particular in you know are you passionate enough that you don't think that you can live without it because it's a very difficult field and it's one yeah, of the most sure. difficult fields <laughs> yeah definitely it's not like if you study enough that you're going to get into a law school or you're going to get into a medical school and once you're out of it you're going to of most likely get a job somewhere mm-hmm. and you're going to be relatively stable in your life. But in music, that's not the case. doesn't matter how talented you are. You really don't know whether you can make it or not. And so, so it's the passion, it's the dedication that keeps the drive for you to hopefully be able to land somewhere um, in this field. So I think that's, that's, if I ever would have one advice for everybody, I think it would be passion. 
do you feel your passion has been, um, I guess a better way to ask this question that I didn't start answering because I hadn't thought it through. Um, you have passion when you first start, like you're saying, and you need a certain amount of passion. Do you feel like your passion has grown through your performances and your studying? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because- Absolutely. So you don't necessarily need the maximum amount of passion you could possibly have, just enough to know that this is for you. Yeah, I mean, just the idea of playing music with people, it gets me so excited every time. <laughs> it really gets me so excited every time, and especially, if I have the opportunity to work with musicians or artists that I so respect so much and I've admired their artistry for years and having the opportunity to play with them, that can get me excited for the whole year, actually. And and it's I think it's that kind of communication, that kind of musical communication that gets me so excited. So we talked a little bit at the beginning of the podcast about uh, looking at scores for musical influ- uh, musical choices and things like that. Um, what are sources of inspiration for you? You talk a lot about inspiration and passion. Um, if there are times where you're either down or you're just looking for maybe a fresh take on a piece that you've known for a while, where do you go to find inspiration? Um, I think a lot of time where my inspiration came from the sound itself. Cleaning. I think, don't forget what you're saying. I just have to acknowledge that if anybody can hear that, I think it's a vacuum cleaner right outside the door. Welcome to hotel life. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just want to acknowledge that that's happening right now. Yeah, so uh, where where were we? (laughs) Uh, Somewhere in uh, where do you find inspiration for you? I think inspiration for me, I think mostly came from the sound itself. And, um, And of course, when when I'm, at a place where it's so beautiful and so magical, those can be complete inspiration for me when I play music in that surroundings, of course. And But I think it has to always do with the sound for me. I think I get the most inspiration from this kind of a sense, sense, sensations of the oral um, in my ear, um, whether it would be from a recording that I just can't live without it. Or, or an artist's voice, something like that. And, and those are the things that I look for um, constantly. Yeah, so a follow-up to that question would be, how do, you, how do you become a better musician, you know? Like if we're all on this quest of a lifelong effort to become the best players we can, but also the best musicians we can, so we can use, like you said, the technique serves the music. Do you... Do you just assume performing more and more and listening to your colleagues that you're playing with? Or do you, do you like actively pursue trying to be, you know what I'm asking? Like, I'm so curious about this because I'm just learning now. I'm happy to admit this and be vulnerable, but you know, I've won two jobs. And so I've had a relative amount of success, you know, and I've played well for a long time, you know, and, and I've liked what I do and I like the way I play and I like the way I sound. But I feel like just recently, I, it like dawned on me when playing for um, my graduate trumpet teacher that my playing has gotten better steadily over the past however many years since I left school. But my drive and my understanding and knowledge as a musician has not increased the same 
at the same rate. And before I had a teacher constantly infusing new ideas and fresh ideas about phrasing and things like that. And so that's kind of what I was asking about recordings and things like that. Where do you go for inspiration when you're looking to say, do I know everything about this piece or are you satisfied? Which, I mean, you play so incredibly well, maybe this is the answer, but are you satisfied with, I like the way that I do it? Do you know, does that make sense? I think at this point of my life, I think um, what I'm interested in in life and in, in what I do and tends to be much more than just music itself. And I have many passions outside of music and and there are things that I find it more important than playing music as well. But And I think those things ultimately feeds into an evolution of an artist because it brings different perspectives when you come back to it. And then at this point, I don't think that necessarily one, for me to dwell on, it's like, oh, how can I play this phrasing better? And of course, there's always room to be better off you know, refining your own craft, but but I think I think for me, I'm much more interested in things that are outside of that, and then that thing, those things usually tends to feed off when I come back to playing music again, and and um, whether to dwell on on a certain um, technical aspect of it or musical aspect of it, I think. My inspirations usually tends to come from things that are outside of music and and they are you know I would say that being a musician it's really not about refining your own craft. It really is something that's much bigger. And that's why music is so powerful and that's why music has has this power of communicating with people with different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different religion, different roots. Why music is a cliche for people to think that, oh, music is so powerful that has a unifying message because it really does. Because ultimately playing music is not about refining your own craft. It's about much bigger than that. It's about, it's about communication. Okay. Well, what about somebody, what about somebody who's like in eighth grade, you know? and they are 13 years old or whatever. And I mean, refining their craft is certainly part of being able to effectively communicate. That's when you studies, yes. Yeah, yeah. So you would say that that applies to you and your thought process now, that the way you grow now is outside of, like you've done so much growth through studies and and and, and, cr- and refining your craft, as mm-hmm. you said. But for you, Constantly, you know, tweaking things here and there is important, but where your real growth lies is outside of yeah. the music world. Interesting. Uh, if you feel like sharing, what kinds of things do you find inspiration from, or passion, or passionate about outside of music? I'm passionate about histories. I'm passionate about human evolutions. Hmm. I'm passionate about stars, and I'm passionate about um, psychologies behind it, and and um, or you know, as as much as I really um, am passionate about one thing in particular is music education, and I, it's very easy for me to give time for music educations or just bringing music to places where that are not necessarily available, and I'm 
very happy to give time to that because I think music has that kind of power to bring people together. And as we know, you know, we're living in a pretty frightening time and, and, you know, things, a lot of, a lot of places don't have this kind of luxury for us that would be able to go to his symphony concerts. I mean, if you can feed yourself, you know, if you can survive for one day, it's already so much to ask already. And, and then if one put your mind in that mindset, uh, it's, it's sort of, over the top luxury for us to be able to make music. And, and I think music is there and to serve, to serve that kind of purpose. And, and, and getting back to your, probably your questions about, for example, what about an eighth grader? This might be a completely a, like a, it's like the kid was like, what are you talking about? It's mm-hmm. like, I cannot play this note. How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do that? Yes, of course. Then you then it it comes down to finding a right teacher mm-hmm. and finding the right personalities between um, you and your teacher, and whether you think it's beneficial to you. And nobody can tell you that. Nobody can give you advice on that because you are yourself. That you need to know what's good for you. And um, a lot of time people always ask us like, oh, what's your, can you give us advice of this and that? And unfortunately, I really do not enjoy giving advice because the advices don't generally work for everybody. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like a shoes, like a pretty shoes doesn't necessarily work for this person. It may look great, but it doesn't fit everybody. So, so it, it, you, you, you need to before one gives an advice, one really need to know the person very well in order to give a comprehensive advice. A lot of people can get advice, but I find myself when I grow up, a lot of advice really don't work for me. And and the most, most of was, the time, the decisions that I make are never came from advice. It you, always came from myself. So do you think there was any value in getting that advice and then finding out that it doesn't work? It could be helpful when you ask for a lot of people mm-hmm. and then to sort of say, oh, that people thinks that way. Oh, that people thinks that way. Oh, oh, okay, this person feels this way, that person. Those are useful mm-hmm. because those are, it's kind of like gathering information. Right, right. And then, and, and, but ultimately it's the decision yourself. Nobody else can give you a device. Oh, I completely agree, yeah. yeah. So gathering information is great, but ultimately one needs to know oneself what, is best for you, and I think that's the most important thing. Because that's you're gonna you're gonna sell that the most, right? You're, of course, if it's you, you have and it's to, genuine, you have yeah. to you have to you have to always come back to yourself because, especially music, is so transparent. Once you're on stage, it's the most vulnerable um, form of communications that one can ever endure on stage and that's why it's one gets nervous because you almost feel like you're naked on stage yeah yeah when you are performing because you cannot hide that that just not something that one can hide what's your favorite piece to play i don't have a favorite you don't have a favorite piece i think as i come back to you know my sort of a lame joke about talking about jokes um as a musician when you go on stage you really need to 
love a lot of pieces that you play. And before before um, you can hopefully transmit that kind of passion to audiences. And that's why I'm very careful in what I play. I don't consider myself to have a huge list of repertoire that I play versus some other of my colleagues. You're like who, a Kleiber kind of, right? You like own the pieces that mean the most to you. I think that's, I can only do justice to myself and then hopefully sleep well at night yeah, that yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm doing something that I feel that I have a voice sure, for it. Sure. You know, you know, after all, people pay money to come hear me. If I don't have something meaningful, hopefully to say, I mean, I might as well not do it. I mean, you know, why do you want to spend an evening at a symphony concert where you can have pizza at a movie theater? That's a good question. So, and I think a lot of time people tend to overlook how important that is. And and a lot of time, you know, I mean, uh, as yourself, uh, orchestra musicians, you know, we, we talk about how, how, you know, the audience attendance declines and, you know, throughout the country or throughout the throughout different regions of the world. And, um, you know, why is that? You know, it's like people tend to go back to the most basic things like, oh, it must be the marketing. It must be this and that, this, this and that and blah, 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 blah. But ultimately, I think it's the it's that communication on stage and with the audience. There's nothing else can make one hook to come back to it again. And why, why does movie theater always will never decline? Because people feel moved. They know that when they go there, they feel that they will be moved or be be relieved from a comedy or be uh, on any given topic. Yeah, yeah. And, no. and I think one needs to go back to think very carefully whether one is doing that job or not. You know, it's not about playing the Beethoven symphony or Brahms symphony for the X amount of time, but it's, whether you're able to to inspire people, it's like they come here to hear Beethoven fourth. I'm sure many people hear that many times, and with our availabilities of of internet, one could easily just subscribe to a digital concert hall and then hear great concerts with Berlin sure, Philharmonic. Yeah, right. What stands that apart, and why should people buy tickets to come hear you? Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, I even think beyond, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I even think beyond doing everything you just said, even having some sort of interaction together. So it feels like this community, like where we have some ability sometimes to interact. Like what you do after a show, you go and I'm, I think you did it yesterday. You had your CDs and you could meet people. They could feel like they went and they heard this amazing yep. person play the violin and then they get to meet him. Yep. And he got to say, thank you for being here. Like this personal connection, I feel like even beyond, that makes the whole, like you're saying, the whole experience that much better. Not just the time they were sitting in their chair yep. listening to it. I, I think that's such an important part that um, I think is like a natural evolution. You were kind of speaking of that kind of idea of, of human evolution, I think as a organization, like the natural evolution is to understand if things aren't working, the root of the cause yep. and what is music about. If we think it's about communication and connection, then how can we highlight that kind of thing? I think that, uh, I mean, but what do I know? I play, I play the trumpet. I don't That's know. That's one Eddie. of the most important part in an orchestra, I tell you. It's one of the most important. <laughs> Everyone plays a very important role in orchestras. Yeah, doesn't matter actually. No, I know. I'm just whether you you play a first violin or you, if you're a double bassist. Um, I mean that's the whole idea of symphonic works. 
everyone contributes to that. And it's not a conductor. It really has very little to do with conductor. It has to do with everybody as a collective. And when you hear, you know, absolutely first-class orchestras, very often conductors are not conducting mm-hmm. because everybody's listening, watching, interacting, reacting. I think that's when music is so beautiful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. That's just, it's, it's inspiring. You know, what I, one thing I really enjoy and why, kind of the reason I, I'm glad I started this podcast is, you know, just being in the same space as someone who's like as positive and as passionate and, and, and believes in what we do as deeply as you do, there's no way it doesn't affect other people. It's exactly what you just described. If you don't believe in it, how can you get somebody else to believe in it? And it's, and it's inspiring too, because then I hope that I could possibly talk about this in a way that could make somebody else feel that way. And then they can think, oh yeah, I'm gonna be passionate. And maybe, maybe like, I think it's easy in a, in a lot of ways to become jaded, right? We, like you said, the mundane can lead to being jaded. You're playing the same pieces or you're in the same space all the time. And so that's partially why I'm interested in this too, like looking to fi- be able to find inspiration and to remember why we do what we do. I think it's very easy to forget when uh, you're in the thick of it. So uh, it's refreshing, you know, to hear someone like you who uh, believes so deeply in what we do. It's, it's a very nice perspective. I'm very appreciative of it. So thank you for being open and sharing. Um, I think one of the, we're getting close here. I don't want to keep you too long, Paul. I, he, he's probably, um, I'm cutting into his rehearsal, his practice and his, and his nap time, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but I do want to ask you about your instrument because I'm pretty certain there's some history behind the instrument that you're playing. And if you don't mind, even like I said, even just for me being a brass player and not quite understanding, um, for us, there are there is a quality of instrument thing, right? You have a better instrument, you can sound better, but you can also sound really good on a not expensive instrument. Like our concept can kind of take over because it's just plumbing, mm-hmm. you know, it's just metal. And there's, that's a way oversimplification of it. But I know with a violin and string instruments, it makes a way bigger difference. So I, I don't know if you don't mind talking a little bit about what make what's the difference between a $100,000 violin and a million dollar violin, and then kind of like some of the history behind your instrument and what, mm-hmm. what you like about it. Well, you know, let me first um, clarify it. There are a hundred thousand dollars violin that sounds like a million dollar box. So, so yeah, I, I think the these player days, behind it. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, there are incredible modern makers who are making wonderful, wonderful instruments, string instruments in particular. A lot of them coming from the Far East, and so. Um, but um, why, you know, why does one still, you know, fetch for millions of dollars for, you know acquiring a Stradivarius or a Guarneri da Jesus violin or a Mati violin. Um, first of all, it's obviously there is a certain history behind an, an instrument of that caliber because it really is an art. It's more than just the sound because um, those instruments are histories and those instruments are sort of like a Renoir or, or Monet painting. It's that valuable of an evolution of mankind, of how can one make an instrument so beautiful like that? Forget about the sound, just the aesthetic beauty. Aesthetic beauty of it. Why does the museum want to acquire those instruments and not being played and then just put them behind the wall? Because it's how does one 
have that ability to carve an instrument of that kind of beauties. And and I think that's why Stradivarius and Guarneri violins, they, they are so valuable and so expensive. And not to mention their tonal beauties that nobody has ever been able to surpass that kind of tonal beauties. It's interesting and they figured it out so long ago. They figured it out so and, long ago. And then and then a lot of times those old people, you know, three hundred years ago, they are much smarter. <laughs> yes. Like Da Vinci's he figured out what's gonna happen four hundred years later already. Yeah. He already knew it. He already wrote that. Yeah, it's very, already, very it's interesting. Like, until now it's like we're just trying to figure it out, but he already figured it yeah. out four hundred years ago. Um it's, so yeah. so coming back to violins, um the violin that I have is um a a violin that made in Italy that was uh, made by the maker Guarneri del Jesus, which who's perhaps considered to be one, if not the top violin maker of the histories along with Stradivarius. And mm-hmm. they actually live on the same street in Cremona in Italy. Wow. They are the rivals. And um, um, Guarneri made about um, 200 violins in his lifetime versus Stradivarius who lived up to the 80s. And um, that was half of the life expectancy of those age. Usually people die around 40 years old in, in, in the 1700s. Oh, so he had way more time to make. So Stradivarius made about 500 violins mm. in his lifetime. In his 90 years old, he was still making violins. And Guarneri didn't live a long life. He lived about 40 years old only, which is normal right. back then. And um, so he, he made about 200 violins in his lifetime. And that's why Guarneri violins are fetch m- even more um, money than Stradivarius because of the rarities. And um, the violin that I have um, does not belong to me, obviously. It's um, from a private foundation um, in Chicago called the Stradivarius Society, um, who um, has been around for uh, several decades, who um, sort of are a mediator between people who are wealthy enough and have the means to buy instruments and pair them with musicians who need an instrument of that caliber for their career. So, so when you say paired, how did that how did you end up acquiring that? I did I, I still don't own the violin. It's well, it's on loan to me. Sure, sure. But how did you get selected for through this? Through recommendation yeah. and then through um industry people because the society is one of a kind. It's probably one of the most famous societies in the world that have this program. So um they have a wealth of committees and people who are connected to the societies and music world is very small. You know, when someone needs an instrument and words gets very quick. And so um, so this violin belongs to the society through a private patron. And this violin was made in 1743, um, one of the very last violins that Guarneri made. Um, so, um, and this violin has a particular history because of who had played on it. And this violin bears the name of the ex Biniowski. Um, which um, the violin was the concert violin for the great Polish violinist composer, Henry Wieniawski, mm. who wrote many, many wonderful pieces for violin, including the two violin concertis. Wow. And um, so this was his concert violin for much of his lifetime. That's so, so crazy that you have that instrument. So um, 
Yes, and it's been that it survived my wonderful and... companions for many many years now, and um, it's really an extension of my body, and and it's a very intimate relationship with the instruments that you have. Oh, it's so cool to to speak. I don't I don't feel that way about my trumpet. You know, <laughs> it, it is. I don't know. Let what... me tell you, it's <laughs> it's much easier to acquire a trumpet than to find right. a violin. <laughs> There's some truth yeah. to that. It's yeah. kind of like everyone has different problems. It's like pianist says, oh, I wish the violin is not that expensive. So it's like, you know, you can you can get an absolutely first class piano for, you know, two hundred thousand dollars mm-hmm. max. Yeah. And then and then my pianist friend would say, say, Well, you guys don't have to deal with every day finding a different piano in different concert halls. True, true. So yeah. everyone has different so like I said, guess different, different, different um, just... struggles in life and in, in what one one accommodates, but I think the most important thing for instrument like this is the tonal beauty. Sure, yeah. And then it's the sheer, sheer um, power that one needs on on a bigger stage, especially playing with an orchestra of this size. Because mm-hmm. um, an instrument like this, along with Stradivarius, I think these are the probably the only two makers that produce instruments that, when you are playing the most pianissimis. That will still cut through the whole, whole yeah, orchestra I mean, the, and the whole. The very back of the sea will still hear you, even if you're whispering on the instruments. And I think that's the magic of the instrument. Yeah, and you can. I mean, the, the, even the very first entrance and the brook is so soft, but the the sound is so present. Yeah, you know. So you get to take these risks, you know, and and just yeah, you know, all over the range of the instrument, it's equal. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's a it's a very beautiful yeah. thing to. To listen to, but it certainly, obviously, as you said, adds to the. I mean, you have all of these musical ideas that you're really, you know, it's very funny. I was talking to Kathleen Costello, the prince, the principal clarinetist. She's my wife. We're mm. married. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we've been talking about this a lot. The this like how to become a better musician, and and I've really been trying to pay attention to like everything I'm listening to now, and it's very funny because I've been taught. That when the performer, if you want to call it right and left brain, um, doesn't matter. You could call it anything. Um, I learned it as what what my graduate teacher Barbara Butler would call dream space, dream dream state, where you're you, you're basically you can't pay attention to what's actually happening mm-hmm. because they're just playing so well. You know, sorry, someone's calling me. Hang on, he knows, but um, and that's what it feels like with you. So it's very awesome because I have to like really try to push past just being like, this is awesome to try to figure out what is he doing? That sounds so good. And then I just realized you just have so many options of way, like with whether it's your instrument or the way you use your bow, you just have so many options of ways to like create intensity and create really magical moments. And Mm -hmm. I just really enjoy that you're using as many as you can to like yeah. create this huge palette that the music deserves. It's very exciting to listen to. I just trying to figure it out. It's hard. Oh, it's that's all. Really kind of easy to say. <laughs> you know, definitely with an with a wonderful instrument like that. It's kind of like painters. You have almost feel like, or at least have this kind of imaginations where like you feel like you have an infinite amount of colors on the palette where you can draw upon. And and I think that's why it makes these instruments so expensive. And then. Uh, artists are craving for an opportunity to play an instrument like this because it allows you free search some sort of certain kinds of freedom and then the idea to be able to dare 
to imagine more than what you feel like you yeah. can possibly uh, dare to imagine. And I think that's what it is about uh, playing these kind of instruments. Yeah. Yeah, that's such an interesting way to say it. That like you know the instrument is capable of anything. So now it's like up to you to really try to and it is find really out. interesting that up to today. I mean, I have had this violin for six, seven years now. I think every day when I'm, or every, you know, every once in a while, I would sort of have a realizations like, oh, I didn't really know that the violin can do this. Oh, I didn't, I've never heard the violin has this kind of quality of sound. And it's just so exciting. Right, so you yeah. always feel like you're discovering something. And, and at the end of the day, I think it's, again, it's that kind of chemistry between you and the violin. Mm -hmm. If this violin were to be played on a different person, I think it would sound completely different too. Yeah, you know? I bet, it, yeah. It's, it's not a one sound instrument. Everyone has a different way of drawing different pressures, different bow speed and different sorts of things. And then with a violin so sensitive like this, it, there are so many sparks that can happen. And, and I think, you know, for me, it's always just very inspiring to even just open the case and then to be in the presence of an art, yeah, <laughs> literally an art of so many years. And, and, you know, God knows what the violin has seen yeah, over, over this 300 years. And God knows the violin, what the violin will see right. in all, you know, many, many decades later that we have all long gone, the violin will hopefully still be there. So what do you say to somebody who uh, is an aspiring violinist and does not have access to a violin of this caliber, you know, and they're just like, I feel like if I were that, I would feel like, what is the point of trying if I'm not going to have an instrument that's like that? I think, I think at the end of the day, um, one should never think about that. Your dream is to play an instrument like this. And, and the fact that actually I purposely did not make myself available to be able to play on expensive instruments so early on. It's kind of like driving too. It's like if you get a Porsche when you're five years, or like, you know, <laughs> how, however, however young, it's like you're illegal yeah. to drive. You, you almost don't know actually how to drive because the car sort of drive itself. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of don't know. And, and, and I don't think that's necessarily good. So you think thing there's either. a lot of value in... There's a lot of value in learning oneself and then to learn how you play, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that you're playing less a good instruments make you actually work harder, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like practicing in a goddamn dry space, right? If you play, always play at the music variant when you practice, it's like, okay, it sounds great already. It's like, yeah. I don't want to practice anymore because <laughs> it sounds great. Interesting. So I think yeah. that's why, I mean, it's, it's sort of a similar idea. So, you know, when you're in school, actually one is not supposed to play on a great instrument like this because you you can get very much sidetracked because it can sound good, but you lose the abilities to actually know what actually is going on. No, that makes because a lot of sense. Because the instrument sort of play by itself, right? Mm -hmm. And and also, God forbid, there are not many instruments like this caliber that one. Well, that's has the to other access half too, to right? That too. Yeah. So so I think it's. Always comes down again back to you. Actually, need to know what you're doing mm -hmm. before you have an access of a, a violin of this kind of caliber. Then you know actually what you're doing. Yeah, because that if you already given so early on, you actually never thought about it's like, oh, I need this bow speed. I need this work. I need the fingering to be like this and that that that. 
in, is actually almost destroying one's playing if you're having the luxuries. That yeah, early, interesting. Know. That's an interesting perspective. Um, that's how I would feel, but that, that that's a very good perspective to know that like basically there's a lot of value in not having one and, and being able to like still yeah. progress in that. I just like, it seems like your perspective is very much like long-term. You know, you're just mm. doing the best you can now and you'll try to be a little bit better next time and a little bit better next time. And if you add that up over a long period of time, yeah. you might be in a pretty good spot when you get to the end. Yeah, you know, I think everything is always like building blocks, you know. I think that's very much true to to how I think of, you know, life in general. So if you exceed so early and then if you climb to the top so quick or something that was almost like, um, transitionals in in some sense, you know, I I think about sometimes, you know, how China is developing. You know, China develops so quick; things are going like they're jumping twenty years ahead each year. Twenty years, twenty years, twenty years. But what happened to those twenty years? If you jump that fast, you collapse that fast. Too, mm-hmm. I guarantee you. And in you know, it's 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 like climbing too. You know, the slower you climb, the the easier that you're going to climb down too because right. you actually know what goes <laughs> in sure. between, right? Sure, If sure. you don't have the experience in between, how are you going to come back, right? Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, I think that is, it's an analogy of life, I think, yeah. Nice. I think I want to end with one more question, which is how stressful is it to be responsible for this violin? That like it's this um, hugely long it is, term. Is it, it is, stressful? Do you feel like when you're traveling? It, it and- is stressful, but I think at the end of the day, it's just being responsible. I think for anything of what you you have, I mean, it could be a laptop. You know, well, I right. feel equally <laughs> responsible to my laptop sure. that I don't have to lose it. It's but the same thing. But that's replaceable, yeah. <laughs> not really. <laughs> well, not the stuff on it, but I suppose, yeah. Yeah, but but um, you know, of course, when you first receive an instrument like this, of course, you get so nervous and then you get so stressed out about it. But, Maybe you're but, used to it now. But I guess. one get used to it, but um, but you know, it's it's the same amount of kind of a care. I think if you care about something so so much, I think you know, it just it just ultimately you would be very careful of protecting it and and for me the violin is never out of my sight and at any time unless it's at home and um it carries insurance obviously and um it does regular maintenance work um every month i see a luthier every month um luthier meaning the the guy who looks after the instruments um who does all the cleaning how do you do that while you're traveling that's why i don't travel one month uh, like straight, you know, oh, I have okay. to go back to New York every two weeks if needed or or whenever I go back, I always get it checked okay, up. That makes and sense, yeah, yeah. Making sure that the glues are all seamed and, and everything is in place. And sometimes, you know, sometimes every once in a while when you play, you know, you would get sweat and, you know, and sometimes you might whack a little bit of corners and then you needed to, you know, touch up like paintings. You know, yeah, it needs maintenance works to be in that shape at all times. So, yeah. so those are basic cares of an instrument. And yeah, and other than that, try to enjoy it as much as I uh, I can for the sound. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for giving your perspective. It's it's in my opinion a very fresh. I mean, it's not a fresh perspective because there's other people who who feel this way, but 
when you find out there's more people like this in the world, it, it, it becomes, uh, it's just exciting to me. And it, I, I'm very happy to have gotten to know you a little bit through this process. So thank you so much for talking with me and being open and, and chatting. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I also would like to thank Brandon Yoakum, uh, who is my mastering engineer who makes these episodes sound so good in the final product. And ultimately, I would also like to thank you, the listener, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. <laughs>